Hey, it's me. Um, I'm on a different microphone, so it's going to sound weird and different. I had a ton of technical issues getting all this stuff out today, and I eventually recorded all the audio, and I eventually got this all done. But please understand that this is literally just me talking into a microphone with no graphics and no buffering and no anything. So, um, yeah, let's. I, I know what the problem is. It's it's the software I normally use to stream. It's it's been kind of wonky since the last update, and it's it's not playing well with Twitch at all. So I'm gonna probably switch over to OBS in the very very near future. But that is a that is a problem for later, John. Uh, for right now, I just want to get this audio out to you as smoothly as possible, and and we'll go from there. So uh, I hope this works for you and I'll talk to you soon or at least you know you'll hear from me in seconds all right here we go ladies and gentlemen guys gals non-binary pals this has been a day of absolute tech disasters which is why uh, you're hearing this on a completely different microphone on a completely different setup without really any of the other stuff I normally do I hope you don't mind. The topic today is really important and I want to get it out, but one of the most frustrating things in the world for me, other than last minute spontaneous tech issues, is that I get really like frustrated as I go. If it's not staying smooth, if it's not, you know, running perfectly, I get real agitated because I'm already nervous because I want to do a good job because I don't get a sense of immediate feedback. I just have to hope that me doing my best on the fly spontaneously is is good. And when I can clearly get the sense that it's not, or I should say when I let my anxiety dictate to me that it's not going well, the wheels come off this bus in a real big hurry. So I don't know what take this is I don't know I don't know how many tries before I've had it doesn't really matter how many tries I've had the point is I've got one single question just one today and I'm going to do my best to answer it because it's a really good question and I think it will really genuinely help people to get the answer to this one question now the person who asked me this question probably isn't going to hear this, um, at least not live, which is fine. I wish they were here, but I'm going to make sure that I, I put this in enough spots that they'll hear it. This question comes up a lot. This question comes up a lot because it, it's a valid question that a lot of people have some flavor of asking about. It just comes up. The question is this. I've been writing and writing, and I don't really think I've gotten anywhere. I can't tell if my stuff is any good. I think I want to publish, but I don't know what to do, and I'm stuck. Can you get me unstuck? Yes. That's the question. And first of all, before we even get into that too deeply, we have to have a conversation about why you feel stuck in the first place and point out that it's not your fault to some degree that you're stuck. Yeah, there's some personal responsibility as to why you're stuck. If you're not writing, well, there you go. That's your answer. But there's more to that because when people want to be a writer at whatever age, a kid in school, whatever, two things happen. We encourage people up to a point, you know, hey, you should be a writer. That sounds so cool. You love books. You love reading. You should be a writer. And Two, the second thing we do is we hand them a very limited education. Here are some classes. Here's some stuff on YouTube. Here's some books with some basics. Here you go. And the support sort of stops there. And it immediately becomes this issue and this element of like, well, you said you were going to be a writer, so how's the writing going? It, it switches from this thing where we're supporting you by providing information to making pressure and demands on you as if what you've asked to do is as simple as, I want to sit down. And it's, it's not. And we can't keep treating it like that. That feeling of frustration comes from not a lack of interest, but a lack of support. 
from a lack of organization, from a lack of education. And again, not your fault. Not a problem you had. Not like, you know, a whole, you know, problem you got yourself into. You didn't get the help you needed. You're not dumb. You're not stupid. You're not wasting your time. There's just not enough we do culturally, collectively, to help people generally write better beyond feeding them the same 12, 15 things maybe. And then we sort of leave it to you to figure it all out. And the worst part of this is the one thing we definitely don't do anything about is the idea that you only know you've done a good job at the end of a transaction. So you're writing and you're writing for weeks and months and at night and early in the morning and you are squeezing your brain until it bleeds to get all the words and the ideas out and you don't know whether you're on word one or word 50,000 or word 65,000 or whatever. You don't know that it's any good until somebody buys a published book from you. At least that's what we tell ourselves. When I'm published, that's when I know I'm good. When I get reviews, that's when I know I'm good. When I sell a lot of copies, that's when I know I'm good. When I get metrics and subscribers and followers, that's when I know I'm good. And we skip the entire middle section. We eliminate the ability we have to be good at writing while we're writing. And that's wrong. It's just wrong. This idea that our validation of success has to be external and can only come at the end of our effort is the reason why this question about feeling stuck and not being sure they're making any progress comes up. The question sucks. I mean, it's a good question, but it's an uncomfortable thing to answer because it's a it's a thing there shouldn't be any question about. You're doing a great job, period, because you're trying, because you're doing your best as often as possible. And if you want to improve, if you want to get better, do this more and add in some extra education. That doesn't necessarily mean like institutional education. You don't have to go to college, but you do have a responsibility to find resources that are going to genuinely help you. There's a lot of different ways we can answer this question and a lot of different pieces we can use to answer this question. And I want to give you some of those over the course of however long this takes. Okay? You have to understand before we go any farther, you have to understand that this is not a thing you messed up. You're not missing something fundamental. You might need to improve your writing. You might need to change the way you're doing things or think about things in a new way. But the lack of support and that uncertainty of quality is not a you thing because you're you. It's a other people don't do enough to help you get better thing. Okay? Understand that and we're going to start knocking this question apart in pieces. Here we go as soon as I can figure out how to get um, get one of the issues I'm having, just, just so we're clear because I'm doing this in audio. One of the issues I'm having is that I made a ton of graphics for this. This is supposed to be big giant stream with video and transitions and animations and stuff. I spent a lot of time putting this together and then um, it the software crashes and disconnects because it's a it's a new version they need to patch some shit. It's a, it's a real big problem. So, um, and I, I don't have like a backup software set up and ready to go because I didn't think I needed one. So, I'm I'm kind of on the fly here. You got to you got to bear with me while I I flip backwards through my collection of graphics and find my starting point. So we're going to start with one piece of this puzzle. And it's a sentence you need to drill into your head. And I don't care whether you've hear, you've heard me say this like 10 times or a thousand times, get this in your head and make this the foundation for whatever you're writing doesn't matter what you're writing at this moment. We're not talking genres yet. Just get this in there. You always want to make sure that 
what you're writing, whether it's characters talking, whether it's a description of like pots and pans in a kitchen, whether it's the weather, whether it's the, the big giant fight scene, whatever it is, you always want to make sure that you are doing your best to invite the reader into the world of your story. And you've got to think about what the reader is imagining, not just what they're seeing on the page, not just what they're hearing in their head if you were reading it to them like a story hour, like a child, but you've got to remember that the reader is reading and the reader is trying to imagine all these sentences and turn them not into sentences where a voice is speaking to them, but turn them into pictures, turn them into ideas like when you talk about the old you know trash overflowing in the trash can or the cigarette that's smoldering in the ashtray they're not thinking about the words they're picturing the object they're they want to picture the smoke curling up in the air they want to picture the flies buzzing around and you might hear me say that and you might think that what you need to do is detail everything as if giving some kind of big, hyper-complete checklist. I mentioned the flies. I mentioned the trash. I mentioned the smoke. I mentioned the ashtray. As if ticking off all these boxes like we're doing a, a word search or some kind of puzzle like that and being hyper-complete is going to engage the reader's imagination. And when you start thinking about that, you need to think about your own imagination when you read things, when you watch TV, when you hear somebody talking, how does your imagination work? How do you picture things? We are going off script now because now I'm just going to talk because I found my footing. Here's, here's the thing. How your brain works is going to be different than how everybody else's brain work. And rather than tell you that you need to force yourself to work in a particular way, I think it's worth our time and space to talk about how we should lean into your strengths rather than force you to fill some template or do something. So when you're trying to describe stuff, Consider that it's not just about making a checklist. Consider that it's not just a matter of doing a complete job in order to be a good job. You want to instead look at this in terms of, hey, I'm trying to get you to picture a certain set of things at a certain time in a certain way. And it's worth thinking about how you picture things when you're trying to get somebody else to picture things. Make sense? We want to start engaging their, the reader's, imagination by thinking about how we engage ours. And if you're one of those people who's about to turn around and tell me that you don't have a very active imagination, First of all, I'm very sorry that you don't have an active imagination. And second of all, this is going to be a little bit more difficult for you than somebody else. But again, not a sign of failure or a sign that you shouldn't be a writer. It just means you're going to have to work a little bit harder to picture what you can and do your best to turn it into words. They don't have to be good words. We'll talk about that in a bit. They don't have to be perfect words. We'll talk about that in a bit too. But you do need to at least start developing those muscles and that skill of turning a picture into something that can also be made into a picture. Picture in your brain turns into words. Words turn into a picture in somebody else's brain. That's the, the sort of cycle we have to start with more than knowing what nouns are more than knowing about chapters and paragraphs and plots and climaxes. We always want to make sure that we are engaging people's imagination. Now we're going to shift from there just slightly to narrow down the scope of what you're writing. Because if you've been writing page upon page and draft after draft and all this different stuff, you probably have a lot of story characters doing a lot of shit, a lot of things happening, many words and many quotation marks, lots of stuff. 
but I'm going to challenge you because now we're going to have to do some decision making. Writing is the act of making decisions after all. So we're going to make some decisions. What is the premise of your story? What's it about? Now, if I ask you that question and you immediately start telling me specifics like, oh, my story is the story of Frodo and Frodo is a hobbit who has to take the one ring forged by Sauron into the fires of Mount Doom and hurl the ring into the volcano because only from where it was it forged may it be destroyed. That's not the premise. That's you being very excited about some concrete stuff. Not a premise. The premise would be a general statement that puts some kind of possibly exciting idea into somebody else's brain without necessarily providing the specifics. It's less about Frodo, and Frodo is a hobbit, and hobbits live in the Shire, and more about the little hero who everyone underestimates does a thing that changes the entire world. That's a premise. You, in your work, whatever it might be, you need to find your premise because that premise is where we're going to come back anytime we get lost in what's supposed to be happening in the story. What's the premise? This is the story of how the rebellion against the empire starts. This is the story of a young man who throws off the shackles of aristocracy and learns to be a vigilante and fight for the little guy. This is the story of a person who never had a chance finally standing up and claiming their own chance and taking up space and being okay with it. This is the story of the underdog sports team finally winning a championship. Whatever it might be, what is your premise? Now, from there, we're going to add another layer on top of that. Your premise, whatever it is, contains themes. There's a, there's a lesson. There's a moral. There's, a, there's an idea baked in the premise of your story that you want to communicate to a reader and get the reader thinking and feeling a certain way. Hey, the little guy, you know, the guy who throws the ring in the volcano, the little guy, he, you know, the unexpected hero can be a hero. That's a theme. A lesson you want the reader to take from your work, not the names, not the spellings, not the backstory, but the idea that they can take from your work and put it in their brain. So that when they think about, oh, these are stories about heroes, your story comes up. Oh, this is a romance story. This is a story about vulnerability and character. Your name comes up. Your story comes up. A theme is a lesson your work is an example of. You need, you need one, especially if you're going to traditionally publish. You're going to go get an agent, a pimp, and then you're going to go send it out to some big company where they're going to you know, exploit your labor and turn you into a pawn. Um, you, you, need, you need at least one. They're going to look for it. And if you don't have it, you're going to get rejected. Ideally, you want two. Two is a nice number. Two demonstrates that you know what a theme is and that you're able to have some diversity of themes. Two is great. Three is a little bit too much, but if you need, th- if you have three, you got three. That's fine. But two is good. We're going to aim for two. Find your premise and extract from your premise your themes. Okay, you're going to need to know these because again, when you get stuck in the story making process, we come back to premise and we come back to themes because your theme is going to show up in different places in different ways throughout your story. It's not just going to be the plot. It's also going to be in how the character makes decisions in their character arc. Well, they're the little hero who everybody miss, you know, underestimates or misunderstands or ignores. So that arc in their character is going to reflect some part of that theme. The plucky underdog sports team who never wins because they're always taken as jokes, they're going to grow to become more serious-minded. That's part of the theme. Find your premise. Find your theme. Stick to them. Don't lose them. Write them down somewhere. That's important. Okay? Now, from there, we're going to start looking at what you're writing because we could talk all day and I normally do talk all day about needing things like plot and character and world building and there's plenty of audio in this podcast feed or plenty of videos on the YouTube channel that's youtube.com forward slash John Adamus plenty of stuff there 
that you can go look for for those deep dives into stuff. And I'm not really interested in repeating all that information because it's a lot. But please understand that that triangle of plot, character, and world is always sort of at the forefront of what we're trying to do here. We use our premise and our themes illustrated by our plot, character, and world to tell our story. And if we were to summarize everything, if we were to look for a magic phrase that we could dig into so that we could get through whatever scene you're writing and tell you whatever character element you're writing and all that stuff, the magic password we would use is conflict. We want conflict. Conflicts are what make plot go. Conflict is what creates tension for our heroes, our heroines. Conflict is what makes the story not just get stuck in place. And your ability to find conflict or create conflict or sit with potential conflict is going to make a huge difference in getting your story across. Conflict is great. We love conflict. Conflict also gives us, and this is important, it gives us an opportunity to sit down and really figure out what our story is and how it's going and and what's happening with it. Without that conflict, our story just kind of meanders. And and we don't want to meander. We want to do better than meander. We want to stay focused, we want to stay organized, and to do that we need to understand that conflict is going to sit at a lot of the story. Now, at this point, somebody starts telling me, yeah, I know, I've heard this all before. I want to know if I'm doing good. I want to know if what I have written is publishable or marketable or good enough. And I'm going to ask you as nicely as I can on a day where I'm particularly frustrated about technical glitches and bullshit. I'm going to please ask you to stop trying to assign the label of good or bad or publishable or marketable to your stuff. It's, it's a nice label. It, there's a time and place for those discussions. And they are far less frequent than you might think. This isn't about good and bad and publishable and marketable and sellable. What you want to look for, what you want to focus on is the idea of you're writing this thing. How can I do my best job writing this thing? How can I improve my language, my comfort, my construction, the ease with which the idea goes out of my brain and goes through my fingers and goes onto the screen? How can I make that experience not just faster, but easier for me to communicate in the way I want? Look for what you want to say and look at what you want to do way more, way, way more than if it's good or bad or publishable or marketable or anything like that. All right? Don't sweat good and bad. I know it's really hard. I know there's a million billion different transactional capitalist things that want you to know about good and bad. Don't worry about good and bad. Just do your best and focus on how you can keep doing your best and doing it better. On we go. I'm ticking through my checklist of graphics, so bear with me. In order to figure out our best method for sorting out the story and getting everything going, your organization matters. And we are now going to very quickly dispatch with that somewhat pointless idea of pantsing and plotting. Because pantsing and plotting is an argument that exists entirely because people on the internet want something to argue about. At the end of the day, either you're going to organize your story in a way that makes sense for you to produce it, or you are going to dismiss organization as something that retards creativity and holds you back because you don't want to be constrained because you have a limited view of your imagination and a limited view of how you can access it. You are putting up a roadblock by swearing that you don't need organization. You need to be organized. 
Not only because, if, especially if you're traditionally publishing, your organization is going to be literally called for. People will want to look at your outline. They'll want to see some of your thinking. They'll want to read your synopsis. And if you are making stuff up on the fly just because it's up on the fly, you're hurting yourself. You're making this harder for yourself. And remember, our whole goal here is to make this easier for you, not harder. Your organization matters, and it does not eliminate creativity. It enables it. You have to be okay with that. I, I know that the word organization conjures for some people some hyper-specific concept of Roman numerals and capital letters and the right way and the wrong way to organize. And again, all bullshit. Whatever method of organization works for you, that's the method of organization you can use. And maybe that will work for you for the entire time you're writing, and maybe that's something that's just going to work right now. It does not matter. But what does matter is that you are in some way, shape, or form organized. Identify in your organization the elements of your story, the plot, the character, the world that are valuable. You're going to make a hierarchy out of this stuff because the stuff in your story that stays from draft to draft, from page to page, from version to version, it's the valuable stuff. And how you figure out what's valuable is we tie everything back to our theme and our premise more than their imaginative quality. So let's say you wrote this chapter where your characters all get together at the diner and they have this really tremendous talking scene where like five people talk around a table while they eat food. It's a great scene. You wrote it really well. That's fantastic. However, what this scene is providing, the value of this scene, it, it's not offering as much. <clears throat> because what's happening is you've you've made this scene important because of its imaginative quality. Look how creative I am. I've made this thing. As opposed to something that illustrates a theme or a premise long before we talk about how it advances plot or develops character. Because we have to go under the surface back to theme and present premise in order to get that working. Figure out especially if you have a big giant monster draft that doesn't seem to be ending at all, figure out how this stuff ties back to theme or premise or both and be willing to just cut the other stuff out. I'm not saying delete it. I'm not saying burn it with fire. I'm not saying never bring it up again. It just can't live in this draft right now. And I know a lot of people get very attached to things they wrote because they've invested in them, because they're vulnerable in them, and um, they think they, you know, they did their best, and it should it should stick around, and somebody should recognize it. And believe me, somebody will. But not everything you write is going to make it through this process. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So you know. It's going to take time, and sometimes we stumble along the way, and sometimes we have stuff that gets cut. It's not a sign of failing. It's just, hey, you brought too much stuff to the party, so some of this stuff doesn't stay. Value your premise and your theme more than your just creative imaginative ability, and you will be a lot more satisfied as you get deeper into this process. It, it does make a difference. And as we talked about, conflict is, is the boss. Your ability to find conflict, define conflict, and develop conflict. And those are all three different things. Finding conflict is being able to point out the situations you create in story. The rules of the world that mean conflict can happen. The, the way the character behaves that you know instigates conflict and your ability to define conflict is your ability to take situations that are there and you know point out that oh this this tension with our characters that's already existing we can qualify it and give it boundaries they don't like each other because five years ago and we'll talk about it in a flashback five years ago these two people got into a fight 
and then developing conflict from scratch, a situation that isn't grounded in a backstory that that matters because you're going to explore it in the story or because you just want to escalate it and light the fuse and set it off. Your ability to develop conflict between story elements, and that doesn't only mean people, world rules, world building, plot, environmental hazards, volcanoes, bears, ninjas, whatever else. Your ability to engineer, develop, expand, and just have conflict be a thing that doesn't always go in the main character's way matters. Super de duper matters. So I've got some questions for you. Questions you want to keep in mind as you're writing. Ready? Here we go. How do the characters challenge each other? Now, I'm going to use the word challenge a few times. I'm going to use the word challenge, and I'm going to use the word effect. Challenge isn't only about you know one person saying, we have to do X, and then somebody else going, I, we can't do X, we have to do Y. Challenge isn't only direct opposition. Challenge is also um, any time where one character's actions or thoughts or whatever affects, changes, alters, compromises somebody else. Challenge and effect here are used synonymously. So how does each character bounce off the other? Are they in line with one another? Are they congruent? Are they in direct 90-degree perpendicular opposition? Are they kind of sort of friends? Are they frenemies? Are they people who will fall in love? Are they people who are going to fall out of love? Where do those challenges intra-character from character A to character B, where do those challenges pop up? That's important. You should be able to identify that. The easier question here is how does the plot challenge the characters? A lot of writers never challenge their characters. You know, the character is hyper-talented or super wealthy or immortal or all of the above, and the story is just the character doing stuff. And that's fine if... A, you're writing, you know, a children's story. It's less fine when you're writing a story for adults that you want them to be deeply affected by, that you want them to give a shit about. Because if your plot isn't challenging, why is the character taking 100,000 words to do it? The fact that the plot might be unknown to the character, I don't know if I can do that, but ultimately I don't have to work very hard to do it is also part of the problem. You need the character to not know if they can do a thing. You need a character to feel like it's very difficult, if not impossible, to do the thing because the challenge of doing the plot is what helps the character grow. When you don't have that, when you're too protective of your character, your story suffers because it's less interesting because the character doesn't really have to break a sweat. Even if they're really busy, and they're doing like, well, they have 50,000 things to do. Yeah, but if it's 50,000 things and they're not very hard, it's just I'm reading a to-do list. It's not the same as being engaged at a story where people can possibly die or there might be a challenge. We don't know if Frodo can take the One Ring. We don't know if the Rebellion is going to be able to defeat the Empire. We don't know if you know uh, Zorro is going to be able to save the Hacienda. It's It's not... It's not that clear cut, but if stories exist where the character isn't really challenged, why should I care? I know they're not going to have to worry. I know they're not going to lose anything. Why should I care so much? Why should I keep reading? You want to make sure your plot is a challenge to your characters. Next question. How does the world challenge the plot? So the world isn't just, you know, the landmass and the atmosphere that the characters exist in. The world is also all the social structures, all the rules for behavior, all the different ways people exist in whatever society they exist in in your story, whether it's cyberpunk or Earth and people are just in love in Chicago or whether it's some medieval setting or whatever. Your world has a set of rules and a set of ways it behaves and operates that should make the plot stand out. You know, if we live in a society and the society has rules and one of those rules is we can't run around murdering everyone, then the plot of who's going to catch the killer before they strike again 
is a challenged thing. The world makes it hard to both be a killer and get away with it, but also makes it hard for the character to catch the killer. Your world should challenge your plot. Now, let's, let's move on a different way. That world should also affect the characters. Whether they're supernatural or boringly immortal and wealthy, or whether they're just regular folks, or whether they're, I don't know, children, or whether they're, you know, teens trying to figure out how to get through their teenage puberty years, the world they exist in, all your characters, no matter who they are, the world should have an impact on your character. The reason why your world-weary teenager is world-weary is not just because they're a teenager in a YA romance novel. It's because the world they exist in gives them a sense that there are limitations. It makes them feel a certain way. That's why they roll their eyes and huff and sigh and cross their arms and nothing's exciting or fun anymore. It's not because it's just, well, that's what the character is. It's because... They're the character's perception of the world gives them this outcome. And lastly, how does the plot affect the world? So you've got this killer on the loose. You've got this, you know, diamond that's been robbed from the museum. You have this ring that gets thrown in a volcano. You have an empire getting toppled. That should change the world. Even if it's just a simple romance story between two people falling in love in an office, that's not going to change the whole globe of your world. It's not going to suddenly cause five planets across the galaxy to fall out of interstellar alignment. We don't need to always take things to this huge scope. But understand that two people in an office falling in love affects the world of that office. It affects the world of those characters' lives. The world in this case is not fundamentally, specifically global. It's specifically internal to the characters. It changes how they feel. It changes who they are. It changes how they act. It makes things at work different. And that's enough of a world shift because how often are we at work? How often are we in those cubes and in that office dealing with our bosses and stuff? Your plot should affect your world. It matters. Now, likewise, we have to talk about arcs now. An arc is a progression in story. It is a, a movement from one status quo through some challenge to a new status quo as a result. Every arc has three parts. Development, conflict, and resolution. And you should be able to point at any one of those parts of your story. Okay, so here are the five scenes where the character, you know, builds up the courage to ask out the person that they're in love with in their office. That's development. The scene where they get, you know, confronted by HR and told not to fall in love with their coworker, that's conflict. And the scene where they finally do ask the love interest, hey, do you want to go out on a date, is still conflict. Remember, conflict isn't only direct opposition. Conflict is any challenge to the status quo, anything that could go wrong for our character. That's conflict. And when our love interest turns to our main character and says, I would love to go out to lunch with you, that's resolution. Now, over the course of that arc, the rest of the story is happening. Even if that's the main thing happening in the story, and that's the whole point of the story, is to fall to have these two characters fall in love, your arcs, your character arc, your plot arc, your world progress, your side plots, all that stuff, they should intersect with each other. They should bounce around each other. They should go in different ways about each other. And they should all cross paths periodically. This is real again, this is where I really wish there were like Nice graphics, excuse me, there were nice graphics about this because I, I tried to make this as visual as possible. So bear with me while I turn a visual graphic into an audio description. Okay, I want you to imagine four shoelaces, four pieces of string in your hand. Your hand is going to represent a scene doesn't matter what scene it is, but it's going to represent a scene. 
and you have four shoelaces. We're going to make them different colors just so that we can tell them apart. We're going to have one shoelace that's plot. We're going to have one shoelace that's character. We're going to have one shoelace that's subplot. And we're going to have one shoelace that's theme. And each scene, your fist, your hand, is going to grab some number of those shoelaces all the time. Sometimes a scene is just going to grab one shoelace. Sometimes it's going to grab two. Sometimes three. Sometimes four. But it is in the act of grabbing those strings that the strings are changed going forward. Plot, character, subplot, and theme pass through a scene... And because of what happens in the scene, they still are plot, character, subplot, and theme, but they're changed in some way. The visual for this is that they, you know, on the way through the scene, they're one color, and on the way out of the scene, they're a different color. They're changed in some way. Scenes transform your arc, and you need to identify how each scene transforms some part of your arc. This scene transforms our plot because it just advances it. This scene transforms our character because they learn a new skill. This scene transforms our subplot by just moving it along. Don't hear the word transform and only think about like big massive change. Sometimes transform is just pass it along or make little tweaks like... This scene is the scene where Tom Hanks makes fire on the island. That's a big transformation. But this scene is the scene where he realizes that, you know, there's not an island for another hundred miles. That's a, that's a little transformation. That's a gaining of knowledge, but it's not a big, big deal. S arcs, shoelace strings, pass through scenes and are affected as a result. The difference, the one thing that doesn't work like this, is theme. The theme shoelace never changes. Theme is theme is theme is theme is theme the entire time. Okay? Theme is always there. It just weaves its way through some scenes more than in others. Again, the visual on that. Think about a hand grabbing things. Think about in the, the finale to Loki uh, season two, there are there's a hand grabbing strands, and that because they're scrunched together, they're changed on the way out. That's sort of the genesis of this metaphor. We're gonna have a little sidebar right now, and a lot of people usually hear me say all those things and go, "I know, I know, I know all this stuff about theme and plot. You talk about it all the time, John. I get it." And you do, you you do hear me talk about this a lot. So. Let's take a sidebar and talk about something slightly different as we move nearer our wrap-up. I want to talk about how you write. Too many writers, way too many writers, write down their stories like it's a transcript. They write down their story like it's a verbatim, you know, time-stamped log of events character did this other character did this somebody said that somebody else said that then they did this then they did that and it's this very elementary simplistic flat passive story that doesn't feel like the readers in the room it doesn't feel like the reader can imagine it because again the readers just hearing things getting ticked off a list and what you want to do is find the best way you can to do better and different than that. You want to craft the idea in such a way that it feels like the reader has it happening around them at the time they're reading it. Which means you need to understand what it is you're writing from paragraph to paragraph or sentence to sentence. You need to be able to think somewhat objectively about it. So let's suppose, let's just make up a scene. There's a guy named Doug, and Doug has just been attacked by the killer because I'm writing a slasher novel. So Doug's been attacked by the killer. And our story starts, this is our opening scene. So Doug's been attacked by the killer, and this is what kicks off the whole investigation and hunt for the killer, is Doug's grisly murder. Maybe 
some people would write an opening where Doug gets murdered and then as he's he's crawling away from the killer and he's bleeding out and he knocks the phone off the table and he ends up calling for help but he dies before help can get there and that's how our story starts some people would write an opening like this doug saw he had no choice he used his last ounce of strength to dial the phone he hoped there was someone on the other end that's not a bad paragraph it's not a great paragraph we're not gonna like blow up the world with writing skill there it's not doing a lot but it's illustrating that doug did this doug did this to this degree he doug had a hope or a feeling and that's it one two three straightforward simple things it's not bad but it doesn't help the reader feel like it's there it doesn't help the reader feel like it's urgent like it's dangerous now a lot of people will hear me say that and turn their writing into something hyper detailed they'll talk about the fibers in the carpet they'll talk about how much blood and where it's leaking from they'll get very technical in the details they'll decide that they need to become a research master in knife wounds none of which is required what you need to do is take that idea of hey doug gets stabbed here crawls to the phone and dies we need to take that idea and create it in such a way that the reader can picture kind of the mood of how that would feel and we can turn it into this instead there was nothing else he could do too much blood loss consciousness fuzzing out at the edges the crawl to the phone felt like 10 miles but he made it there was a trail of blood behind him that would later remind a paramedic of a slip and slide now i didn't change anything i didn't suddenly add in more stuff i added a paramedic later but it's not like i suddenly you know spent more time with doug or gave doug a backstory or anything i just changed the way i was going to relate the information of doug got stabbed and crawled to the phone i made it sound more engaging i made it sound less technically detailed but more evocative so that the reader gets a sense of things that's important that's what we're going for keep in mind that in order to do that in order to get there and this is one of the stumbling blocks for a lot of writers you have to be vulnerable you have to connect with yourself and relate to yourself in some way shape or form because that's what's going to help you connect to somebody else and a lot of writers get real real resistant with this like shockingly resistant with this because they'll say things like yeah i'm writing a story i'm writing a fantasy story about clans at war there's no reason for me to relate to that i'm a guy living in a suburb which is not even remotely close to accurate i mean yeah you're living in a suburb and they're made up bunch of people in clans but we we live in clans we don't call them clans anymore we call them families or we say they're you know co-workers or cohorts or friend circles or the five people we go to high school with those are all our clan how we relate to them you have to understand that when you're writing whatever you're writing however detail you've made it however creatively you've thought up all the little structures and gimmicks and doodads of the world beyond all that the reader is trying to relate to your story it's not about fact it's not about you know having this easy breezy just sort of i'm giving you the impressionistic view of things there's nothing wrong with being impressionistic but we need to temper and balance that with a number of other more concrete things so that it's a you know something to picture and i don't only have to go by feel and in order to get there you have to be vulnerable because the relationships between characters that you're trying to create that love story in the office that ya supernatural novel of that girl getting her first boyfriend and then finding out that the boyfriend's really dead the the horror novel whatever you're writing the legal thriller whatever you're writing even though you may have never gone through the plot even though you may not be a person who exists in the world 
There is something of that plot and of those characters and of that world that exists in you. Or the absence of it in you becomes a thing you idealize. You know, you write an asshole character when you're not an asshole. You take your worst traits and you ratchet them up to 11 and then you embody them in this made-up character. That's still some part of you. Relating to other people is the whole point of being creative. We create stories and photos and paintings and birdhouses so that we can share our lives with others. We we dress that up under the idea of we want to be successful and we want to make money and we want to sell books and we want to be famous. But the reason we dress it up that way is because that is a more comfortable way of understanding that what we're trying to do is create material stuff that helps us in our lives connect to other people in their lives. And in order to do that, in order to have the most functional and far-reaching suite of skills, tools, and abilities to connect with others, we have to connect with ourselves. So when we look at our life, when we look at what we make and what we do, we have to look at our experiences. Now, I'm not saying we need to dive deep into the trauma of your existence. If you've had some rough times, that's what we have therapy and mental health support for. And I'm not saying that you need to have that immature response that I'm going to write my story and have a character go through my story because all that does is demonstrate that you're trying to heal yourself, which is fine, well, and good, but understand that that's that's for you and should be for you, not necessarily for others. But in your in your world, in your story, connect with other people. That character who's, you know, in a new place. You've been in new places. You know what that's like. You remember the awkwardness of being a teenager. You remember the frustration of losing out on something you had your hopes set on. You know what it's like to have a meltdown when you can't get any of your goddamn audio equipment to work. You know what it's like to spill stuff on your shirt five minutes before you go on a date. You've had these moments. And while they're not going to happen verbatim in your book, the feeling is still there. You know what frustration is like. You know what anxiety feels like. You know what urgency is or loneliness or excitement. It doesn't have to happen one-to-one for you in order for it to happen in the book. But you need to connect with yourself here. You need to stop and think about what it is you're trying to get across to the world because that makes a difference. Relating to other people, being vulnerable on that page means connecting with yourself. If you're fr- if you've got characters who are frustrated with the dystopia they live in, take your own frustration with the not-quite-utopia you live in and find a way to express it. It doesn't have to be because of the same situations. That's a blinders way to think about things. But you do have to channel, and you do have to be receptive, and you do have to pay attention because connecting to that makes your work better. It's also about this time that people start talking to me about, yeah, 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 I know all this, fine, whatever, but it's it's taking too long. Why is it taking so long? Why is it so hard for me to do this? Why is it just so much? Look, speed doesn't matter. Speed matters to you because you're using it as a way to indicate that you have an expectation on yourself, that you've been very good at other things, but why are you not good at this thing? So you're angry at yourself in some way, even though they're two totally different things. Let me give you an example. I'm very good at explaining writing things. I am, however, terrible at explaining them with a camera on me. And I could get better at that. I could put a camera on me and I could do that, sure. But it makes me very uncomfortable and I don't want to. And I'm a you know, free-ass person. So I don't really explore that. But the times I do get on camera, it has gotten easier over time. So that speed in your writing, that speed will come with time. And that quality in your writing will come in time. Because instead of judging it as going too slow or taking too long or I'm not good enough at this. Instead of focusing on that 
Instead of using that as a way to judge yourself, focus on the production of it. And I know that feels weird and inadequate because we're very used to being sort of um, qualified all the time. Somebody has to come along and tell us that we're doing a good job. We're very praise-oriented as a way of seeking validation. Your writing speed and your quality will improve the more consistent your effort and the less frequently you judge the quality and speed. If you stop thinking about it, you'll get better at it because you'll stop worrying about what is or isn't working and what is or isn't happening and when it is or isn't happening. No one cares. No one's going to be more proud or less proud relative to you making a thing. It, it, just, it just won't be like that. That's not how this goes. Don't do that to yourself. You deserve better than that. Uncouple your connection between speed and quality and value, goodness, from the ability to do it and do it well, and you'll be much, much happier with how things are going, even if you're only writing, you know, the same amount all the time, who cares? Are, are you planning on, are, like, are you dying? Are we going to be dead within six weeks? Do we need to write faster on purpose? Because if so, there's other ways to do this. There's other ways to skin this cat. The point, however, is that you just want to be seen as being good at it. So tell yourself you're good at it and then just keep going. I don't know why so many people care about the speed at which they're doing something. You're doing it. You'll get better the more you do it. Speed is not a factor. Don't make it one. As I said before when we started this, the thing people are missing more often than not is not education. It's feedback and support. And you need to be aware that in a lot of those writing spaces, there's not enough feedback or support. Coexistence with other people. I'm a member of a Discord where there's a million people logged in. That's not support. That's just population. I'm a member of the human race. There's billions of us. That doesn't mean everybody's going to encourage and support me. Most of them are many continents away from me. Support and feedback, quality support and quality feedback will encourage and improve your efforts. It matters. It really matters. And likewise, who and what you surround yourself with will not only influence what you make, but how you make it. If you're one of those assholes who decides that I've seen other assholes make a book, so I'm going to make one too. But it's for the echo chamber of all the people who agree with me. And I'm not telling them anything they haven't already heard. Understand that you're doing that because you're seeing the results and seeing the group around you and you're not really pushing yourself. If everybody around you is writing a fantasy novel and they're talking about it, some of that will seep into your work. Not because it will erode your vision, but that's just because we're social animals. If you're not getting better and every time you engage with those people, it sucks the life out of you, don't engage with those people. Find better people. If you need you know, if you've got a thousand million questions and you ask them and it feels like you're talking to the wall because people are just like, Google it or I don't know or what, whatever, that's not my experience. Find a different spot where you can ask different questions. You don't want to write your stuff, make your stuff on an island away from everybody else. That's not going to help you. But understand that what you put around you and what you put in your head and what you permit to stay in your head is going to influence what you do. If you tell yourself that this is really hard and it's always a struggle and it's always difficult, then that's the experience you're going to engineer for yourself to have because you'll get frustrated very easily, which will slow you down. If you surround yourself with people who are constantly starting new projects but never finishing anything because they only talk about how discouraged they're getting... You'll get used to talking about how discouraged you are, and you'll never finish anything. Look at what and who is around you. 
Look at the support and feedback you're getting or not getting and make changes accordingly to help yourself. That matters. So let me speak as me now to wrap this thing up. I firmly believe that every single person hearing this, everybody, I don't care what you're writing. I don't care how long you've been writing. I don't care if you've been published or if you're selling books or if you sold a million things or two things or you know, you haven't gotten started. I don't care. Everybody listening to this can get benefit from a coach a writing coach, somebody who can not only point out what you're doing and what you're doing well from what you're not doing or not doing well, but also pointing out like how to set up a better schedule for you, how to play to your strengths, how to accomplish some of the things you have questions about, how to help you succeed. A writing coach can help. Likewise, so can an editor. You're going to need an editor. At some point, especially traditionally publishing, a lot of people are like, well, they'll edit it. Or I'll give it to my agent and they'll edit it. Why? Why not absolutely streamline this process for you earlier rather than later? If you knew that your work had to meet certain criteria and had to be of a certain caliber in order to go forward, why wouldn't you do everything humanly in your power to get your work to that degree so that it could go forward with an easier path. Why wouldn't you get it edited? Most of the time, people cite two reasons. They cite fear of you know, rejection or fear of critique. They don't want to be told they wasted their time. They don't want to be told they're very, you know, they were bad at this and they shouldn't have done it in the first place. They don't want to find out that they made a million billion mistakes that they didn't know about. They don't want to find out that they're not good at a thing they tried very hard at because they don't want to be discouraged. And if that's your only assumption as to what an editor does, you need to hang out with better editors. Because the whole point of editing is to point out your mistakes, but not point them out because you suck. It's to point them out so that you can improve, so that you can get where you want to go. If you took your car to the mechanic to service it, the mechanic is going to tell you to, you know, we got to adjust this and realign this and refill this and plug this in and swap one of those. They're not going to yell at you for like, hey, you know, the other day you drove at, you know, 35 and a 25. Like, that's not what the mechanic's job is. They want to get you where you want to go and get you there as best as possible. You need to hang out with a better editor. And if at all possible, find somebody who or find a group who can do both. People who support you, a coach, an editor, a whole panel of people who can help you do a thing. The question initially was, I want to do this seriously, I think. How can I get unstuck? Remember this. If you want to do something seriously, take serious steps towards your goal. If you want to really make a difference here, take serious steps. That's that's the whole point. And lastly, I've got a deal for you. Really, truly, I've got a deal. If you want to get serious, you want to improve, you want to do this, and the factor you bring up is, I would do all this, John, but it's really expensive, and I don't have any money, and I don't have any time. Let me take some of that off your plate. Make time, but know this. If you right now, right now, go to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.as.me, and you buy a package, sign up for three hours of coaching, just three hours, and you can book them from now till 99 years in the future. You can take 20% off three hours of coaching if you use code SERIOUS when you, when you check out. That offer is good through the rest of 2023. And it doesn't matter what you're writing, doesn't matter how far you are, doesn't matter if you've written one word or a million words, doesn't matter at all. If you want to get serious about this, no matter what, head over to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.as.me and use code SERIOUS at checkout 
for 20% off three hours of coaching. It will help if you let it. Now, I have finally, after 90-something minutes, and I don't know how many redos and do-overs, gotten all this audio out. And I know that there's a lot of pausing, and I know that there's a lot of editing to do, and I'm honestly tired and grumpy, so I'm not going to edit this. I'm going to cut a little quick promo up front, and I'm going to stick it on the podcast feed, and it's going to go out and I'm, I, I need to go take like 15 minutes and, and, and pull my shit together because I'm just grumpy and I have more work to do today. So I want to thank you genuinely and sincerely for putting up with me and all this nonsense. And I will talk to you very, very soon. See ya.